0: Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman.
1: And I am your host, Lauren Burke.
0: And this week is the final episode of our Agnes Grey read-long. We will be comparing the book Behind a Mask, which, why I called it a book, but it's a novella, actually, Mm -hmm. written by Louisa May Alcott but secretly under the pen name A.M. Bernard, in 1866. But before we talk about that, we have a special guest.
1: We do indeed. Now, some of you will remember that to kick off our deep dive into the book, we invited Dr. Amber Poliat, who you'll remember from our Brantwood and Bronte Parsonage Lit Tourism episode earlier this year, to join us for an online event this was Bad Live, Agnes Gray in Context, and that presentation was so good and just too fascinating not to share at least some of that conversation with all of you. So we had her come back to join Hannah and I for a little, a little discussion to rehash some of those key points.
2: Um, So between 2015 and 2018, I worked as a live-in adjunct faculty member at Harlaxton College, which is set in a Lincolnshire country estate. So this is a huge, sprawling 19th century building, and I lived on site. So I taught during the day, but I was also responsible for um, attending trips with students, traveling for their different experiential learning trips. I took them all over the UK and I took them to Europe. Um, And I would also be involved in other tasks like picking them up from the airport, things that were kind of unconnected with teaching, but it was a matter of other duties as assigned. Mm -hmm. And I had a little room that was kind of at the opposite end of the building from where the governess's room would be. So um, I had, yeah, I had my own little space there and I would come into contact with students when I was coming and going. Um, I would eat in the refectory with them. So I had this odd experience that in some ways was similar to Agnes's where your time wasn't really your own. Mm -hmm. Um, And I should say I love this job and I'm really good friends with a lot of uh, the people that I met there. But I would have students come up to me in the refectory while I was eating breakfast and ask me questions about teaching. And so the um, boundary between my personal private life and my teaching was very porous um, and Mm -hmm. sometimes non-existent. So that was a really interesting experience. And then also it was fixed term. So I knew that I would be leaving after three years because that was the length of a postdoc. So I was kind of always thinking about the next situation that I had to apply Mm -hmm. to if we're going to use that governess terminology. I knew it was always short-term and the Victorian governess also knew that she was always short-term, that she could be turned out at any time, um, depending on the family's changing needs or whether they decided to move or whether they didn't think she was an effective teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, And then governesses would also be, you know, turned out and dismissed once the youngest girl married or the boys went to school. So it was never a stable profession. There was always a lot of uncertainty. It was very precarious.
1: That's really interesting. I love that you brought up like the boundaries, because I feel like that's what I feel are needed most in Agnes Gray. And I think we've had a lot of talk about how it's like a very claustrophobic novel and how it's so much in Agnes's head. But Yeah, like externally, it's almost like you have to be performing or teaching or modeling behavior at all times, right? So, of course, there's a lot going on behind the scenes.
2: Absolutely. Um, And so when Agnes is told that she has to take Marianne into her bedroom, which is her only private space within the house where she lives and works... That is a a really shocking thing, and it's something that really disheartens her because it means that at no point during the day, she totally mistress of her own time. Now, she really is on 24-7. She has no privacy. She has no space to call her own. And it's obviously really difficult to carve out your own personal space when you are living in the place where you work.
0: Um, Mm -hmm. So,
2: again, those boundaries are um, broken or yeah, they they are totally broken for Agnes when Marianne occupies her bedroom.
0: When you um when you were doing the presentation, you kind of gave a rundown of the architecture of the houses and how the rooms were laid out, and I think that's really relevant to that feeling of isolate of isolation and not having your own space. So, could you run us through again, like how the houses were built, just to really make the governess's space as small and contained? as possible.
2: Sure, um, so in Harlexton what was really interesting for me as a Victorianist is that there was a governess's room and the governess's room was contained um, and placed at a distance from other groups in the house so for instance she was away from the servants because a governess is expected to be um, in terms of her education and morality a lady. And at that time, there was a lot of prejudice against the servant class. There was the feeling that they were educationally inferior but also morally inferior, um, that they might have vulgar speech or they might be sexually loose. And so of course you have the governess who is educated as a lady kept at a distance from them. But then the governess is also not a member of the family and she is a hireling. And so you have to keep her away from the family themselves. Um, You also want to keep her away from any men who are visiting. There's this real fear in the 19th century that the governess would use her position in a wealthy family to improve her circumstances by finding a husband. Um, So she would go for the elder son in the family or that she would have eyes for a male friend who came to visit. So, the governess's room in Harlexton Manor is placed at a distance from the bachelor's corridor as well so that there would be no communication between her and the men. You really want to, in the 19th century, keep the sexes separate for the most part because you don't want to have any kind of scandal. And a scandal involving a governess would have been incredibly shocking. So you want to keep her contained. Um, but the governess's room in Harlexton was contained in other ways as well. So there is a gold staircase outside of the governess's room, but the governess also has a private staircase and that communicated from her bedroom all the way down to the nursery where she would collect her charges in the morning after they had been washed and dressed. And then across the landing would be the schoolroom where she would teach them and give them their lessons. And then if you carry down one more floor, you hit the morning room and she might present the children there in the morning to their parents and get orders for the day. So the way that Harlexton is laid out architecturally, it It contains the governess, it prevents her from crossing into other spaces where she doesn't fit because of her class. And you can see how that governess's experience would be totally contained, um, very, very claustrophobic. She might take her meals in the nursery or she might take them privately in her bedroom. Um, In a lot of cases, governesses were invited to eat with the parents but it was by invitation that wasn't something that you could necessarily expect to be doing regularly if you were a governess so you can see from the architectural details at harlaxton the way that being a governess is not just a social experience or an effective experience but it's also an embodied experience and there are limitations on the spaces that she can occupy and the way that she can move throughout the house i think
1: one thing that resonated with the audience during the presentation was the um kind of the census and them sort of realizing that there was this surplus of women and um so i don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit and how you have this this group of women that has these have these very real anxieties about like how they're going to like support themselves and how this is like one of the only options
2: sure um so The census is a technology that allows people to understand, for the first time, demographics um, and the proportion of different populations. And so in 1851, they asked for people's marital status. For the first time and this uncovered some really disturbing information so there were 500 more women than men in great britain and 2.5 million of them were single and so these women were described as redundant surplus women because they weren't considered to be um productive in terms of a heterosexual marriage and there was a lot of anxiety there because in the 19th century the goal is for women to marry someone who can support them um, so that they can stay at home and make the domestic sphere you know a place of comfort and retreat for the males um, and a place of nurturing for the children while the men go out into the public sphere and have jobs and execute their their interests abroad so The real concern is if women aren't going to be marrying, how are they going to support themselves because at this time, there are very few things that women can do to earn money and still maintain their status as a lady. There is a real concern about women being involved in commerce, about women taking a wage. You can see in Agnes Gray the prejudice towards working class women. Um, the women speak differently from Agnes. They're considered to be a little bit sexually loose, like we've seen uh, when Agnes comments on the man and women or the man and woman who bring her trunk to her on her first night in the new house. So there's a real question of how these women are going to support themselves if they can't count on marriage and they can't count on a male relative providing for them. And so one of the ways that they can support themselves is by becoming a governess because Teaching and caring for and nurturing other people's children was seen as an extension of their natural abilities and propensities, which uh, were all towards child care and becoming a mother. So being a governess was one of the few careers that women could take on and still maintain their status um, as a lady, basically, even though they didn't have means.
0: I think one of the things you just said as well was really interesting because you're talking about the fact that the domestics or the lower class women are portrayed as being um, like more at ease with the men and Mm -hmm. like what the connotations of that are. And something that I think has come up again and again in this reading and in the comments is uh, Agnes Grey's reserve towards Mr. Weston. And actually, if you think about her position and the fact that everyone is terrified she is going to meet a guy or hook up with a guy and then she uh the anxiety or reluctance she has to admit to Rosalie her feelings when Rosalie is aggressively going after Mr Weston and keeping them apart you start to understand why it's not just hard for her to admit it to herself but why she really can't show in front of any of them because we know that that family talks and talks to the servants and if it it got out that she was tipping her hat at a man Mm -hmm it's not just like a funny joke she could lose her job over it because actually the Murrays might be like we don't want a governess who is just here trying to
2: get yeah. hitched
0: and send her home so she really can't like she has to internalize it because her career is on the line she's not just like she's not just oh she's he's not, not just gonna reserve. like me yeah you know yeah. It's, it's it's bigger than just like does he like me back it's
1: I kind of wonder, too, how much Jane Eyre is influencing those comments. Because, you know, you have this fairy tale, this totally different situation where the governess Mm -hmm. in the house is flirting with the man of the house. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if they're comparing it to, to like, the sexual tension and sparring that's in that book. But this is just, yeah, you're right. I mean, she can't flirt with him. Otherwise, people are going to talk and say, like, hey, your, your governess is not and modeling like, perfect behavior over there right
0: the government right. the comparisons with Jane Eyre as well are so interesting because I think and I know that you talked about it and I'm sure you have like a lot to say but I feel like some of the things that happen in Jane Eyre would make more sense to me if it was more rooted in the career of being a governess so some of Blanche Ingram's comments Is that her name? I always get her, I always think her name is wrong. Mm -hmm. So, just when the family kind of sat there talking about the governess and how they treat the governess, because Jane Eyre isn't particularly caught up in her job or thinking about her job or considering her place in the same way that Agnes does, you don't get a lot of the context for why people might think that. And then when you read Agnes Grey, you're like, all of these things people are saying in Jane Eyre suddenly makes sense to me because I understand the experience of being a governess, which is an understanding I do not get reading Jane Eyre.
2: Right. So the only moment in Jane Eyre that really um, makes me feel like it is a governess novel is when she is sitting there listening to Blanche Ingram um, and the other house guests talk about terrorising their governesses. um, Mm -hmm. And one of the stories is about... The, the grown children house guests say we made up a story that the tutor and the governess were in love. And of course that has disastrous consequences for the tutor and the governess because they cannot be carrying on an affair. Um, so this is a real concern. There is a real risk that you would be turned out. And like he said, Hannah, this is a family that talks. They talk mm-hmm. to the servants They talk to uh, other members of their social class. And if this gets around that Agnes is on the prowl or she is, you know, looking out for a boyfriend, there are really serious consequences because it will impact her ability to seek a new situation. There there will be talk Mm -hmm. about her you know, the governess is not just tasked with teaching, reading, writing, arithmetic, geography, languages. She's also tasked with raising young women who are morally upright and who will be good 19th century wives and mothers. And so if this gets out, it can be disastrous. And I think too about the fact that Yes, the servants in this novel, there is this suggestion that they have a little bit more freedom laughing and talking, the sex is mixing. In a place like Harlaxton, it was different. So the women's sleeping quarters were kept far away on the opposite side of the house from the men's. Um, there were all of these different ways to separate male and female servants so that you wouldn't have a scandal, you wouldn't have a pregnancy, you wouldn't have them carrying on. So that respectability is still important for the servant class, but they do get to socialize when they eat. Um, The servants in Agnes Gray certainly do get to socialize men and women and i think too about rosalie murray um so her main purpose in her mother's eyes at this point is to flirt it's to sing in the drawing room it's to catch the eye of wealthy older sons who stand to inherit so she has to flirt that's part of her purpose that's what's going to move her to the next level but there's also a real risk there so um Hatfield says well you know I promise that I won't tell anybody about what happened and I want you not to tell anybody about what happened and so for Rosalie he wants her to keep quiet because it would be embarrassing Mm -hmm. for Rosalie though if he said uh she's flirting all the time she's carrying on in fields with random men Uh, there's this real risk that her marriage to Ashby won't come off. And so she has to keep that knowledge from his mother and from his family. And so silence is desirable for her as well, because that could ruin her reputation if she's known to be a flirt. So there is a risk, um, but for an upper-class woman, the risk is different than for a working woman like Agnes, who needs to get a good referral and who needs to be able to go to a different situation.
0: And yet Rosalie just uh, tells everyone anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I don't care. She, really care.
1: <laughs> she wants to blow it all up. Mm. Um, I think a lot of the other comments uh, that we've kind of gone through have talked about whether or not Agnes is good at her job. And mm. this is really hard to ascertain, I think now especially.
2: So... In the 19th century, um, there were governess colleges that were set up to train governesses so that they would be able to offer a higher standard of education and command a higher wage. But Agnes is a home-educated governess, and so for her first post, I would say she's she is not successful because she is approaching these children from her point of reference, which is living in a loving family where the parents are devoted, where she has been taught by her mother. And the implication is that she's also been taught some of the classics by her father, but her mother is basically her teacher. And so she loves her mother. She honors and obeys her parents. This is a loving kind of um, educational environment. Whereas in the home of the Bloomfields, the parents are the mother is, overindulgent, but she doesn't really care about her children's moral development in the way that Agnes's mother does. And Mr. Bloomfield is uh, an alcoholic, Mm. and he is very aggressive, and he is verbally abusive with the mother and with the servants, and he's always angry, and the children obey him because they're afraid of being punished. He has these violent outbursts, and so The children have received no moral education from their parents and no discipline. And so Agnes coming in and saying, um, you know, don't you want to please me because you're good children? Don't you want to do the right thing because that's the moral thing to do and that's not going to be effective for them because they've only ever been indulged and punished. And so she is totally powerless to work any change. Um, there's also the issue that she has no authority to work any change, so she is not allowed to, um, scold them. She's not allowed to give them any kind of punishments because the mother wants to take control of that. Uh, so she has absolutely no authority and no power within that situation. So I would say that she's unsuccessful, but she's also living in a very chaotic, volatile, emotionally abusive family and so it would be impossible for her to work much change given how the short amount of time that she's there and given the limitations on her power and and also given how naive she is when she first goes into that situation because she is used to just an ordinary loving religious home. Mm-hmm. I would say for her second post with the Murrays, I think she is much more successful. Uh, Obviously Matilda won't learn from her. Matilda is not interested in anything that she has to say, but the fact that Rosalie calls upon her in her time of need, the fact that Rosalie seeks Agnes out as a confidant because she knows that she can trust her, That all speaks, I think, to Agnes's success in forging a real, um, authentic connection with Rosalie. Rosalie's mother basically wants to dress her up and sell her to the highest bidder. Mm -hmm. So her mother is, is not the kind of trustworthy confidant that Agnes is. Agnes is the only person in her life who will not flatter her, but who will give her good, honest advice to the best of her ability. Um, And Agnes is a person who will put her own desires and her own comfort on hold in order to go and provide Rosalie with emotional support. So I would say that her, her, instruction of Rosalie might not be 100 successful because Rosalie is an older student when Agnes arrived and because she has been groomed by her mother to just be ornamental and showy and beautiful and to find a husband but in many ways you can see that Rosalie is receptive to Agnes's influence. I think it's funny as well because like the
0: longest the longest speech we get about what makes a successful governess or like how a governess should be comes from mrs murray who we can only presume had a great governess when she was a kid (laughs) who is just grooming her daughter to like for this career as a wife and has like a very set idea of what she wants agnes to do like even from the first um from like her first response to the advert where she's like, you know, I don't care if you've got like much experience or whatever, I'll send the boys to the tutors and you just need to be like patient and like good humored and like put up with their shit basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do find it interesting that we get this like quite long paragraph of her being like, um, I pulled it for the note so she says that a young lady's proficiency in elegance is of more consequence to the governess than her own as well as to the world if she wishes to prosper in her vocation she must devote all of her energies to the business all her ideas and all of her ambition will tend to the accomplishment of that one object and then just she goes on to say like When we're looking at who to hire, we're looking at the young women that they've had in their care before. And like a judicious governess knows that while she's obscure, all of her virtues and everything good about her will be present in these young ladies. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to take that with a pinch of salt. Right, because it's not Agnes or Anne Bronte who's saying this is what makes a good governess. It's Mrs. Murray, who is a terrible mother and has never been a governess, telling you what makes a good governess. So it's like Mm -hmm. from the eyes of this one incredibly biased employer, this is what makes a good governess. But as a reader, Mm -hmm. it should be like, is that.
1: Sirens, warning bells going off. Yeah,
0: that's not the case. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes it is really hard when you have characters that kind of give an opinion especially when it's long like this is a chunky paragraph right right. not be like oh this is telling me that that this is what success is yeah
2: right but that would have been the definition of success for a lot of 19th century women who were employing governesses and it's but it's this idea that persists even today that you should lose yourself in your work that you should lean in, that you should forget all about your personal comfort and your boundaries and your time and pour everything into this job that you're doing. And when you think about the fact that Agnes is not paid well for her Uh labor, Mm-hmm. and that she is working all of these hours outside of her instruction. Um, one of the things that she complains about is being called on at all hours of the day and night. There's never a, an expanse of time that she can actually sit down and read a book or write a letter without being interrupted by the irregular hours that her students keep. Um, so this this is an ideal that the employing class had that workers were just supposed to give and give and give and give and take pride in their work. But there was no material benefit coming Agnes's way for doing that well. And of course, like once everybody is married off, that's it. Your utility is Mm -hmm. done. You're done. And so you need to find a new place. Um, And having your charges make this glittering, wonderful society marriage is good. That will stand in your favor. But good for your
1: portfolio
0: yes
2: yeah but the government but how, but how does she do that without
0: authority or without tools or without Absolutely. any of the stuff that mrs murray like yeah. is not giving her so she's saying like these are all of the things i expect and like i get the like the portfolio thing i think that's like a really like good way of putting it but so yeah. for her to stand up and say that and say i don't understand why my girls don't want to be around you or like why you're not a good companion to them. The reason she's not a good companion to them is the very reason that she's a good governess. Cause she's yeah. challenging their bad behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what Mrs. Murray wants her to do is to stop doing that and make herself more amenable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, she just can't win. I just think it's so funny that just in no way can she win.
2: Absolutely. But I think this idea about ambition is, is really interesting too because in um, the governess's benevolent institution in um, an essay that was written in support of them and attached to that short story, Bread Upon the Waters, they say, you know, a governess puts all of this work in, all of this ambition, she strives to do her job well and she meets with absolutely none of the benefits that a man would do if he put all of his ambition and his Mm -hmm. work and himself into a job. So I, I think you're absolutely right that on one hand, this is just totally, um, not achievable because Rosalie has been groomed to be one thing. And Agnes is offering her a moral education that is totally worlds away. But also there's this really, I like, galling notion that she should just give up everything yeah. that she should pour all of herself into this job that is only ever going to be temporary that is never going to support her she's not going to save any money to retire she's you know just give everything until your utility it doesn't exist anymore and then you go on to the next place and you give everything and then you go on to the next place and we are back There were so many great moments from that
1: presentation and um, really good pictures, too, that we are unable to show you in this audio format. So um, if you weren't able to attend that talk and you do want to see the full thing and you'd like Amber to actually, you know, act as a guest lecturer for, you know, your JASNA group or maybe even your class. I think that you should reach out to her via Twitter at Amber T. Poliat and I will actually put the details um, in our show notes as well and you should pay her and you should
0: pay her for that too seeing as it's all about women's work absolutely compensation absolutely so I think the thing that really struck me um both times talking about it with Amber was just like the lengths that the families were going to to just keep the governess like in her place and Mm -hmm. really actively defining what that place was within the architecture of their homes that was fascinating because i i just didn't know it and then hearing about it in the context of like the stately homes having these sets of rooms that the governess inhabited just really brings that to life Mm -hmm. for me at least and just yeah like the governess is dangerous yeah they were scared. <laughs> they were really scared. That's not like a casual, like, oh, we'll put her th- here. That's like fortification, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. medieval shit. <laughs> um, oh, I don't know if the, it made it into this conversation or if it was just in the like the live event, but the governess's room not overlooking the driveway, like not having a view of it, so you mm-hmm. couldn't see who was coming and going. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, if I was a governess, I'd be like, oh hot guy coming down the drive, got to go downstairs. (laughs) So I'm exactly who they had in mind. Yeah, absolutely. When they they made that decision. Within that context of like the dangerous governess and the risk and keeping her well away from everyone, I'm really glad that we get to talk about the absolute trip that is behind a mask within that context because what a ride that is, like the complete opposite of Agnes Grey. (sighs) It's... So good. Nonstop from start to finish. A ride. Yeah.
1: Great time. Oh, my God. So, okay, so I've heard a lot about Louisa May Alcott's Sensation Fiction, but I didn't really dive into it until I read Louisa May Alcott and Charlotte Bronte, Transatlantic Translations by Christine Doyle. Highly recommend this book, by the way. Um, That book made a ton of comparisons between Jane Eyre, Vanity Fair, and behind a mask and so like all of that I was like okay I'm interested this sounds this sounds intriguing mm-hmm. um but I yeah it's weird that I hadn't actually like been attracted to Alcott's sensation fiction before because I do feel like it's that's more up my alley but I think the way that it's often talked about is just very dismissive right like
2: People are yeah, always absolutely. like,
1: it's too wild. Or she just, she only did it for the money. It's not serious. It's crazy.
0: And so I've just been not, like, okay. Not all shock factor fiction is good. You know that yeah. I don't enjoy like the story of an hour or like these short stories. Like I get what they're saying, but like the little twist at the end, like I'm not there for it.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: I didn't get that with this, right? Like I was on board. Yeah. And so it felt like, the twist is there, but there is like a payoff and it's not just like the M. Night Shyamalan of fiction. Right. Like it's really... Well, I do think that she... It feels like she had a good time writing it. Mm-hmm.
1: Is the thing. I feel like that's the sense that you get when reading this. And we've, we've read a lot of Alcott on this show and I feel like she's been pretty hit or miss for us, honestly, in the past. <laughs> yeah. But I think this is the first time that I'm like, oh, okay, she's having fun and she also like has something to
0: say Mm -hmm. this is what i was getting from behind the mask so um also remember when she wrote little women she didn't want to write it she didn't write domestic fiction she was like against it as a project Mm -hmm. and just did it because it paid a check right So,
1: so like really the same argument against her sensation fiction could be made against little women so yeah so yeah let's let's rethink how we think about Alcott's sensation fiction. Also, let's read more of Alcott's sensation fiction, because I'm in now. (laughs) I'm 100% in. So, um, I just want to note really quickly that this is actually written before Little Women. So, uh, like Hannah said, above, I think sometime between 1865 and 1866, when she wrote the majority of that sensation fiction, and that was just after she returned from Europe. And um, it's thought that she probably picked up a copy of Lady Audley's Secret when she was on that trip and that she's also sort of thinking about mm-hmm. all of these things. So that's another governess fiction if you haven't read it. Um, and I will note that that's Amber's favorite. So I haven't read it though. So we're not going to talk about it today.
0: <laughs> yeah, I haven't read it either. FYI, <laughs> I haven't read it. And if you haven't read this, if you are listening to this episode and you haven't read Behind a Mask, please i say this all the time please stop listening to this episode it's so short please mm-hmm. just go and read it spoilers ahead and this really is a short story that you should just go and read and enjoy yeah. and experience okay so spoilers ahead also game of thrones spoiler coming just a little, <laughs> just a little reference for you sorry oh, no. lauren game of thrones spoiler <laughs> coming up so, Behind a Mask, or its alternative title, A Woman's Power, is the story of a governess, Jean Muir. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I think so. To say that? I yeah, think Jean so. Muir. Yeah. I <laughs> thought maybe it's like Maya or something, but oh, yeah. Jean Muir.
1: Muir, yeah. That's and the family
0: that have just employed her. And I think that this book could be a play. The action mm. all takes place on one estate, the Coventry estate, although I think it's in two houses. Yes. I think the family live in one and then this other dude lives in another one. He's yeah. also their family, but he's not like their family. And the cast is really tight. I think it's like eight people. Yes.
1: This is, This should absolutely be a play. This should but be But we're going to do it. No, but no one gonna, else do yeah, it, but we're doing it. it. Yeah, we are going to it. Yeah,
0: just FYI, mm-hmm. so don't. Uh, and we recorded this uh, at half past nine on the 24th of August just for copyright reasons. Oh, yeah. Thanks. So, <laughs> FYI. Um, so the the antagonist, the heroine, yeah. the anti-hero of the piece is Jean Muir, the governess who is somehow young and demure and artless and at the same time scheming, sharp and cold. And in fact, she is four of my... New favorite words: uh, usurper, tyrant, incubus, and spy. I yeah. believe could be yeah. used. Yeah, and describe Bronte her. described her in *Agnes gray <laughs> uh, We've also got Gerald, who is handsome but indolent. And mm-hmm. indolent is like what, willfully lazy? Yeah, yeah. I'm indolent. so I really. Yeah, me yeah. too. Oh, that's what I was gonna say. I'm though, I'm the Gerald of the. Of the I'm Gerald. <laughs> okay, so he. Absolutely gets off on the wrong foot. He doesn't bother to order a carriage for her because, I mean, who, who cares? There's no reason not to. It's, it's not nervous. even that he doesn't care. It's just like, yeah, whatever. Just didn't want like to be annoying. I think he did it to just be annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he also just loudly chat shit about her with his cousin while she's in the room. Yeah, while Jean's in the room. And so then that leads us to Lucia, who's the aforementioned cousin, who is living with the family in the hopes that she's going to marry Gerald. Now Mm -hmm. they're not engaged, but it is understood in the same way that it's understood Mr. Darcy's going to marry his cousin, right? Mm Yeah, It's like the the deepest wish of Gerald's dead dad that that would happen. She's beautiful. She's cold. She has a maid called Dean who loves hiding in bushes, just mm-hmm. like Mister Weston. So that's <laughs> really another does. character, Dean. Uh, you've got Edward, who's the younger brother, who's in his early twenties, and he's like kind and nice and bored, and he just wants to be a man. Yeah, you he's know, just,
1: he's just like that little brother who's kicking about.
0: Yeah, needs something and it's, to it do. is quite sad because it's like it keeps talking about how he wants an occupation, and Gerald has the power to help him get something. Mm-hmm. And is too lazy to do it. Yeah. So that's like a plot point. Uh, And then you've got Bella, who's 16, and she is Jean's sole charge. And she is repeatedly described as being simple (laughs) and like a simpleton. But as far as I can tell, she's just like a nice girl who's lived a sheltered life. Listen. I don't understand. She's no Rosalie, is the thing. Yeah, she's harmless. Yeah. Uh, And then we've got a silver fox. Dad bod god. In the form <laughs> in the form of Sir John, who is wealthy and titled and I think the owner of the estate as a whole. Yes. I think the rest of the family are living in another. His is like the nice house mm-hmm. And they also have a nice house, not a great house. right. It's an all right house. I feel like than it's my house.
1: I kept like a picturing it as like sort of like a, a dowager's
0: like cottage on the estate. See, I I just kept thinking of it as a stately home, but then with another bigger fuck off stately home next to it, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense. They like they don't specify, and they should. It it yeah, they should specify. Yeah. Wait, and then one last person because this is really short. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Coventry, the mum who is sick and keeps to herself. Mm-hmm. Life goals. I wrote. Great. I guess I want to sit in my room and not see my children. It's she seems a... fine. She seems yeah. simple. She seems, yeah, she's lovely. Like, she uh, definitely
1: total opposite to the mums that we've encountered in Agnes Grey. Okay, so I know you're rolling your eyes at me, but um, let's go ahead and cast our play. Okay, let's dreamcast this thing. Okay, so Jean, Anya, Taylor, Joy... Uh, Gerald. Do we have anyone for Gerald? Who's What's the, one he like? The 25? That, one of the He's boys the you
0: fancy. One of like the one insipid Englishmen you
1: fancy. <laughs> <laughs> I should just like make that chap book, shouldn't I? Yeah. Insipid Englishmen that I fancy. <laughs> yeah. Could be Hiddleston. That one that Could you be... like, the detective one. Oh, you know I love Sean Evans. Yeah.
0: He's my he's my husband. Just he's too old for this though. Someone with gray eyes. I don't know. <laughs> no, you know, um, Donald Gleason, Dominal Gleason.
1: Yes, yeah,
0: he would be great. Okay, um, he's in here. I want to cast Tessa Thompson as Lucia.
1: Done. Because she was really She's she was good.
0: stone cold in Westworld, and I just think that Lucia just needs to be like blank face she needs to see Poker right face.
1: through you yeah exactly absolutely edward younger brother early 20s any anyone he this can, is a free he's an up and coming. any guy open casting yeah. call for him straight from drama school from that guy and bella um bella
0: Ooh, some yeah, and child bella. that was in the sick i don't care the children i don't know I don't any care. 16 year
1: olds i'm <laughs> i'm too old to know anyone under 35 i think um really the most interesting one is the silver fox Jason Isaacs. Sir John. So
0: you want Sir you want <laughs> Sir Jason Jace, Isaacs Sir Jason That's Isaacs. what I call him. When he takes he? a show. <laughs> he might be a Sir Jason Isaacs. I I don't I can't ask Siri again because it will talk to me. <laughs> um I want Rupert Graves. We're up for either though. We're we're really flexible. Lawrence, so, you know. I want Jason Isaacs. I've already said it. uh <laughs> Mrs. Coventry, someone sickly. I'll do it. <laughs> Hannah will do it. Hannah's Mrs. Coventry. <laughs> so the story that all of these excellent actors and actresses are gonna be uh acting out for us mm-hmm. uh the story that unfolds is just this completely fascinating account of Jean Muir using her wits and her wiles to make basically each member of the family fall in love with her. And then the way she starts pitting them against each other and playing with them and putting on her act and like when it slips and when it breaks and what she allows people to see just until she reaches her final goal, which is a home and financial security. Now, of course, not everyone is taken in, otherwise it wouldn't be a good book. Right?
1: There'd be no suspense. No
0: suspense. So the people that aren't taken in are Gerald, Lucia and Dean. And then seeing her navigate that situation and maneuver them without them being able to do anything is excellent. And also, I won't tell you which, but one of them doesn't trust her, but then does trust her, but then simultaneously doesn't trust her at the same time. And there's this really good Mm -hmm. bit where it's like when she's there, they're in. And then when she's not there, the doubts creep in.
1: Yeah. And I was
0: like, yes, Jean, get it. So
1: <laughs> there's Great scenes. They're going to have great scenes together.
0: Amazing <laughs> scenes. Uh, so there's disguises, there's declarations of love, there's letters, there's forgeries, there's races against time, there's love triangles, there is a train crash, and there mm-hmm. is a casual middle-class Victorian blackface incident. It's all there. Yep. It's all that, that is everything in there. Everything you expect from an Alcott book just... Right there. Right Did you there. get the
1: stabbing in there? There was a stabbing oh, in there. A,
0: yeah, there's a stabbing. Yeah. Mm. So many
1: things happen in this book. It's <laughs> amazing. I just, the plot will absolutely give you whiplash. Like, especially after reading Agnes Grey. Just like total opposites story-wise. And yet, um, I feel like they are ultimately trying to say a lot of the same things. Oh, I which think is
0: really interesting. they pair perfectly. It's like cheese and chutney.
1: So again, I'm going to recommend that everyone read this Louisa May Alcott, Charlotte Bronte, Transatlantic Translations. Just really interesting to see, you know, just the ways that Louisa May Alcott was influenced by Charlotte Bronte um, and how she incorporates that into her storytelling and just some of the like small references that she has in Behind a Mask to Jane Eyre are actually really interesting and fascinating to break down. But um, Here's I'm going to read this line that I think stood out to me from the book and made me think of Agnes Gray. So this is uh, Doyle talking about Jean. Wherever Jean is, there are bursts of laughter and animated conversation. The narrator comments, the very servants liked her. And instead of being what most governesses are, a forlorn creature hovering between superiors and inferiors, Jean was the life of the house. And um, that made me think of Agnes Gray because she's described exactly the opposite way. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it made me think about just how Agnes is so true to herself as a person and she just will not perform. pretend. Yeah. But Jean is an actress. And as an actress, she is the ideal governess. because yeah. She will perform this like femininity. She will perform like whatever. She'll be whatever these people want her to be. Um, and she's so, a, she's yeah, a different feel... person
0: for each of them. I think is yes. the important thing. Um, mm-hmm. There's Hey listen, there's a great Star Trek episode where uh, there's this like alien woman who's been grown to be the ideal mate for whoever she meets. And it's just mm-hmm. like that. The, something that I really liked was that um, behind a mask starts from the family's point of view while they're expecting her mm. arrival, which we never really get in Agnes Gray. And Mm -hmm. that... It it was just interesting. I think they're, like, a good thing to read one after the other. Definitely behind a mask after Agnes Grey. Because it's a bit sillier. And, like... Yeah, I think so. But um, just hearing their conversation... And that felt really authentic and real. Like, just the dread Mm -hmm. of a stranger... Who's probably going to be really boring... Because they can't afford to not be... In your house. Just sucking up the air. And the joy. Mm -hmm. Because also the family's behaviour is going to change at least a little bit around the governess as well. So, yeah, they're all kind of dreading it a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And And then it's really funny how she plays with your
1: expectations that way too. And then in comes Jean and she's great.
0: Right from the get-go as well. Like there's so much physical comedy in it. And also just like, Mm -hmm. just the the timing of the humour is really good. So in the first chapter, before Jean's even entered the room they're all sitting around waiting for her which again is funny because it's like oh my god the horror of waiting for a governess (laughs) like an actress great and there's this bit which goes i do hope she has come for when i make an effort to see anyone i hate to make it in vain punctuality is such a virtue and i know this woman hasn't got it for she promised to be here at seven and now it is long after began mrs coventry in an injured tone before she could get breath for another complaint, the clock struck seven and the doorbell rang. Amazing. What like, <laughs> well, they're already slagging her off. But there were also quite a few points I found where like, I just didn't, I couldn't follow it. And I kept having to mm-hmm. reread passages because mm-hmm. there's a lot of dialogue, which the dialogue is very characterful. So it's often very easy to tell who's talking because it sounds like that person. And there's not a lot of, said Mrs Coventry said Edward yes, yeah um and so there is a scene when Jean is talking to Gerald and then Edward just appears and starts talking but isn't mm-hmm. announced so i was like Gerald said that yeah but- <laughs> and now Gerald is her boyfriend but they're talking about Edward and it's just that Edward had just arrived but it doesn't say mm-hmm. he arrived and it doesn't say he's talking there's
1: bits that feel definitely, like, very rushed. like And you're like, whoa, who is where? Like, the after the train crash, kind of the, some something very similar happens. Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute, give me
0: five seconds. Just, yeah, I just need, like, a, yeah. And also, because she's, like, on the brink, she's, like, doing the whole Mary Crawford, like, making love to all of these guys. So it's not out of place, the idea that Gerald would suddenly be calling her Jean. But it isn't, is mm-hmm. because it was bloody Edward. I just yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was just a little bit. And then there was what there was another point because I was reading it on Project Gutenberg. Like and I was just scrolling and because mm-hmm. the letters are like typeset differently there was a bit where I just saw dear bella uncle is safe and I was like <gasps> Bella's in on it. They know that Jean's up to something and they've saved the uncle from an ill, Mm. ill ill-fated marriage. And I was like, wow, Bella's way smarter than I was giving her credit for. The the big twist is that she hasn't fooled anyone. Great great turn. And the children have foiled her like Mm -hmm. the parent trap or something. I don't know. (laughs) And then I read the letter and it's like, dear Bella, uncle is safe and didn't, die in a train accident <laughs> I was like oh, yeah it's okay. like
1: has nothing to do with Jean okay yeah.
0: fine no one knows what's going on okay and that's fine I just I did like that the book just kept me guessing the entire way through and sometimes mm-hmm. sometimes I thought something was happening and it didn't other times I did guess but it's okay I think in some circumstances to get it like yeah there's a bit where Jean uh, there's a bit where Gerald is reading a letter um and I right away knew that the person who sent the letter didn't actually write it. Like I knew it was fake. So it goes, mm-hmm. if you fall in love with JM and you can't escape if you stay where she is, you will inc- you will incur the trifling inconvenience of having your brains blown out by yours truly, FR Sydney. Which one, hilarious. excellent <laughs> letter. And I have to start <laughs> writing letters like that. But two, my first thought was, Wow, I wonder if Gene can forge handwriting and has swapped the letters. Yes. Just straight away. I mean, I think it's I think that's part of the joy though. It's like when you watch like an Agatha Christie like Poirot. Oh yeah. And you f- you work stuff out with him. But that's mm-hmm. you have to so that you don't notice the the bigger things that happen. Like you've got a Yeah. You know, you have to lay little. down a
1: lot of little, like, red herrings and misdirections. Yeah, absolutely. So that you
0: feel smart. So you're like, I know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then when you don't, you're yeah. like, oh, shit. Okay. And so I did write a note. This is, like, my, a final thought. <laughs> um, I just wrote, like, is Osborne's wife in wives and daughters a governess? <laughs> is a note that I wrote to myself. Yeah. And I just... Oh, that's right. Here's what grindspike is. Oh. Men just <laughs> setting up these like little situations for these governesses or like just these mm-hmm. women who are below them in stations they either like they secretly marry them or they're like i'll buy you a house richard gear does it in pretty women like it's still happening people <laughs> but like what is Power. this fantasy it's like like oh just uh, like they're all obsessed with playing house but instead of with dolls it's with like real women and it's just gross. Yeah. And it just, yeah, just the power imbalance though, of Osborne marrying mm-hmm. a woman who doesn't speak the same language as him and is in like, yeah. a, you know, just completely dependent on him in every way. And like basically could have starved to death after he dies. And then in this, you've got like, is it um Edward being like, I'll set you up. And even Sir John's like, we'll we'll sort it out. They're all just like, yeah so involved and like they think it's nice but actually it's not nice i don't think it's nice i think that's why we're on gene's
1: side right Mm -hmm. we're like yeah take advantage of these of this man that's fine because that's what you feel at the end of this book you're really like gene go get him louisa may alcott does a great job of um of getting you to feel well, I mean, I think taking it back to like your point in the beginning where you're talking about how the family was like slagging her off, you know, for being late, even though she was not late. Mm-hmm. Um, just you feel their superiority, yeah. especially Gerald too. He's constantly looking down at her. He's constantly he's and just talks about her as her. if she's not there. Yeah it's it's completely i would love to see more of that in agnes gray actually Mm -hmm. honestly that's what that book maybe was missing as well
0: behind a mask is very solid in how much time is passing not Mm -hmm. a lot of time goes by and it's like you have like this is happening in three days so you know from like this point and like Chapter whatever to this point it's been like three days you know there's been like a few weeks and that was something that was a real problem with um Agnes Grey where because it's like vignettes rather than like this chronological yeah. story with the families and so I think mm-hmm. that's where you lose some of the scenes of just like the domestic interactions
1: mm-hmm. which
0: yeah. you just don't have with Behind a Mask because it's it's shorter as well it's a smaller story yeah. but I think it's more effective because of that. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah, She's it's gotta just gotta really like tight. pack all of that in. Yeah,
1: yeah. It does feel like it does feel. I mean, it's
0: it is plot heavy. Uh, so it, it feels plot heavy, but it is. It's so good. I don't either. I yeah. I love it. It was really
1: fun discussing this book in the Facebook group too, and seeing everyone have the same just like what the heck reactions to all of the story beats. Um, so Eleanor said the contrast with Agnes Grey is so stark just think of how Agnes deals with all of those uncomfortable walks to the church where she's the third wheel by pretending that she's just super interested in the flowers and birds Jean would have like found some way to be part of the conversation while appearing to avoid it mm-hmm. absolutely
0: yeah. well the first few times Gerald would walk with Lucia and ignore her so then she would actively walk with Bella and then eventually she would walk with Edward and and then Gerald would get upset and be like, I you yes. walk with Lucia and then he would end up walking with Jean.
1: Or at least trying she a, to. She did a lot of like actively ignoring Gerald mm-hmm. and like not giving him attention so that he would just become obsessed. Yeah. And Neve agreed saying, uh, Agnes has no charisma. She's too direct and it's too easy for her to be made to feel uncomfortable. Jean drags everything out plays mind games with everyone and what self-belief fictional Victorian villains are the best. I agree. Yeah. Well, you needed an actress. That's the thing. I think that's what we've learned yeah. about being a governess. You actually need to be a really great actress.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really good point that you've made
1: and figure out how to play people. Um. She also said, if this is the kind of stuff professor bear berated Joe for writing, then maybe I'm not so into that relationship anymore. Even if he is Louis Gorel. Is that the guy who played him in the late, latest I, one, I'm guessing? Don't ask me. He was pretty hot. I mean, I'm into that. Uh, Why would you spoil my fun, Bear?
0: Agreed. So we also, uh, there was also a lot of chat just about the costume reveal in chapter one, which is mm. such a weird moment. I think that was the first point where I just was like, because I, I actually, like, I'm not just saying I was screaming. Like, I mean, I was, like, in my bedroom, like, what is going on? What? Yeah. Um, oh, 100%. Yeah. So I'm going to read this quote because it is crazy Tom. tell. Uh, Still sitting on the floor, she unbound and removed the long, abundant braids from her head, wiped the pink from her face, took out several pearly teeth and slipping off her dress appeared herself, indeed, a haggard, worn, and moody woman of 30 at least. The metamorphosis was wonderful, but the the disguise was more in the expression she assumed than in any art of costume or false adornment. Now she was alone, and her mobile features settled into their natural expression, weary, hard, bitter.
1: 30 at least.
0: Yeah, that's, like, offensive. Because she's like... (laughs) She appeared herself indeed, haggard, worn, and moody. And I'm like, I turned 30 this year. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have false teeth or fake hair. That's so sad. Oh, 30. Yeah, I screamed. I I think I glossed over it because... So this is the Game of Thrones bit. So I'm sorry, but these books have been out for a while. And also this is like a season six or seven reveal, which means it's like definitely three years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this bit where like the hot woman takes off a necklace and then it's like magic and actually she's really old and then Mm -hmm. she's just naked and so as i was reading this that's what i was seeing so in my head i immediately went to like an elderly woman Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. just and i was like wow she's really tricking them (laughs) this old woman is really and she said she was 19 and then i reread it and i was like oh fuck off 30
1: (laughs) So Rachel was wondering what uh, Sir John will say when the hair comes off and the teeth come out and uh, added that she thinks that he is probably the kind of man who would have a separate bedroom and only come to Jean in the dark. I mean, if he's not, Jean will probably get that going. She'll probably she'll probably go like, we need our separate spaces. She'll figure out a way. She's crafty. I, I, I believe she can do it. Um, and Hazel added that Jean could probably explain away the teeth, at least if she needs to. He knows she's been poor and it's a reasonable vanity. Yeah. And the wig seems to have stayed on, uh, through all kinds of adventures so far. So she's probably good. (laughs) She's got some good wig skills. She was an actress, guys.
0: I think she knows what to do. So Joy had some really good thoughts about the ending of the book, saying it's amazing that Jean gets her happy ending and doesn't really get punished at all. I really like that when Sir John proposes, she promises to be true as steel to you and make your life as happy as it deserves to be. And the book says that she promised... Uh, says that what she promised, she faithfully performed in after years. So really, how is Jean any worse than any other young woman who is trying to catch a rich husband? She's just better at it, that's all. And frankly, because she's playing a part, she may be a better wife to Sir John than she would be if she were just behaving as a normal, complicated, faulty human being. So um, I was really glad that Joy brought up the just the idea of punishment Mm -hmm. at the end and like just the idea that someone should get punished is an interesting concept it really makes me think of uh, phantomina and Mm -hmm. like being sent to the convent and the idea that like a woman who schemes once discovered should be punished or might be punished like i'm not saying that joy says she should be punished but like that's kind of the tone that a lot of books have and actually that's something that jane austen does in her writing Mm-hmm. constantly at like the end of her book she often punishes women for their mm-hmm. misdeeds either through an unhappy marriage or so- social isolation or death from uh, uh, you know having a baby outside of marriage things like right. that like there's a lot of unhappy weddings and that's not the case with with Jean Miu. so she doesn't she doesn't get punished she wins so I do think that, the I do agree that the whole family is like definitely transformed through knowing her. Uh, like imagine if Mary Poppins had successfully single white female Mr. Banks. I said successfully, <laughs> yes. like she's trying to do it. That's, I mean, that doesn't <laughs> happen. But what if she had, you know? Great um, story. Like, but yeah, again, it just made me think of that one line from Agnes Grey But God knows best, I concluded there are, I suppose, some men as vain, as selfish and as heartless as she is and perhaps such women may be useful to punish them. Mm. And I just think ultimately it isn't Jean or Lucia or Mrs. Coventry who are getting punished in this story. I think it's the men. I think it's the men that are are the ones being punished. And I think that's interesting at the end of a story like that. And again, that's something where I think you get that from reading Agnes Grey beforehand. That's why (laughs) I really like appreciate, I just think they speak so much to each other. Um, Hazel also made a connection to Rosalie's behavior saying, weirdly, I have so much more sympathy for her than Rosalie doing this more naively to worse guys. I suppose we get to see inside of her head more. And I think Hazel's right. Like part of the sympathy is definitely from having Jean's point of view throughout Mm -hmm. the story and uh, the letters at the end and just really understanding why she's doing it Yeah. but also Jean has a goal and a purpose at least for mm-hmm. what she's doing to Sir John and in su- to some extent to Gerald but ultimately Sir John like she needs a-, a home and she needs financial security and as Amber was saying in the interview you can't be a governess forever you can't be, an- like she's not going to be an actress forever so her life is on a timer and it's running out and mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's an urgency to it. Uh, That said, Jean absolutely just breaks Lucia and Gerald up because she can, which I don't think is dissimilar to Rosalie flirting with Hatfield and getting a proposal from him because she can. It's a power thing. They both want to teach someone a lesson. They're not interested in an end result other than the misery of that person. Mm Mm-hmm
1: yeah i just absolutely. think that
0: jean's goal is maybe more sympathetic
1: yes her goal is more sympathetic and you can see i mean this book is just like sort of railing against the class system mm-hmm. essentially and whereas in agnes gray she's she's trapped by it you can complicit. feel it like
0: yeah I think she's complicit in the class system
1: she is complete she is complicit but she's she can be both yeah I would love to do more sensation fiction on here. I would actually really love to um, read um, a long fatal love chase. I believe that's what it's called by Louisa May Alcott. Someday we will get around to that. But maybe uh, next
0: May, maybe the next, the next, maybe, the next Louisa May Alcott that rolls maybe around. That will come back around. Um,
1: now, speaking of Louisa, So now, the fifteenth annual benefit walk for Louisa May Alcott's Orchard House um, is virtual this year, and it will be taking place between Thursday, September tenth, and Sunday, September twentieth. So you can just run it and submit your time anytime during those dates. And um, yeah, we have a bonnets dawn team. If you want to sign up and run with us, and I say run it. I mean, walk.
0: Yeah, I'm yeah, probably going to walk was, the slowest time. I was going to run. but And then the I no. was training. And the, uh, and then I wasn't. I'm training, but
1: I'm walking very slowly. I shouldn't even say I'm training because my time is going to be so embarrassing. that people are going to be like, she trained and it still took her like 18 <laughs> hours to run that race. Um, So we're going to put up some links in our Facebook group, directing you guys to the website where you can sign up for the walk. If and- you are.
0: If you are training, or running it, or prepping, take a video, record yourself doing it. That's the... Make like a little audio diary, a video diary. That's what we want. Or if you come across anything, which is like a Louisa May Alcott reference to running, make note. Did anyone catch the reference to running in Behind a Mask? Ooh. Because there was one. Excellent. Bella says, I have to go for a run before my next lesson. (laughs) Because... Because Jean tells her to.
1: And if you would like to wear a very special Team Alcott t-shirt during your video or during your run, then we can help you out with that, can't we, Hannah?
0: Yeah, we finally we finally did it. We've added we're adding to our team collection. So we've got mm-hmm. Team Austin, Team Bronte, and finally Team Alcott in honor of the 5K basically Woo. it's got a little boot on it we'll share that we'll share the pictures it's really it's nice. really
1: really cute it's uh, very cute
0: incredible illustrator friend jen milton designed it for us and we are grateful for their time and assistance yes it's fantastic
1: um so obviously we will be posting links to that all over the social medias and hannah what are
0: those you can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can find us on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn.